Hello everybody, thank you very much for downloading this week's episode of the Cinema Catch-Up Club. This is just to let you know that the Cinema Catch-Up Club has an official Patreon page. If you'd like to become an official member of the club and get some bonus goodies, including early access material and bonus features only available to our patrons, then please join up at patreon.com forward slash ccuc podcast. And now, for this week's episode. Hello everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Catch-Up Club, the podcast for films that you probably should have seen by now. I'm your host, Stephen Platt. Thank you very much for downloading this week's episode. And this week, it's a bit of a special episode. Every episode's special, but this one is special for these reasons. Uh, It is an episode that was chosen by our wonderful patrons over at patreon.com. The film in question that we are uh, reviewing today was selected by them and voted for by you, the general public. Uh, And the reason that we are watching this specific film is because it's also an in-memoriam episode for the legendary film composer Ennio Morricone, who passed away last month at the age of 91. Uh, When it comes to Morricone, there are more films than you can poke a stick at. Um, There are over 500 films to which um, Morricone had done or provided film scores for. He was prolific. He was going right basically up until until he passed away. Um, And he's worked on some incredible films, films like John Carpenter's The Thing, Once Upon a Time in America, Once Upon a Time in the West, um, The Dollars Trilogy, obviously A Fistful of Dollars, For a Few Dollars More, and the film that we have chosen today, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And joining me as always, we have someone who has seen this film and someone who has not. Our guest who has not seen the film, it's Dr. Ellen Sears. Hi, Stephen. Uh, who I have decided is going to be the good in this particular episode. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yes. I, I'm, I'm intrigued to see which one you guys are going to be then. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in just a sec. Um, <laughs> I have a bad feeling about this. <laughs> um, so, uh, first of all, Dr. Ellen, how are you? I'm well. And I'm well. you have not seen the good the bad and the ugly no i haven't so at least not to my knowledge so what do you what do you know about it clint eastwood is in it mm-hmm. and i know the theme tune and it's a western and yeah that's that's pretty much about it i know that um you and i had a little chat about it the other day about how it was like released in america with the other ones from the dollar trilogy but i haven't seen any of those either mm. so yeah <laughs> excellent so that's it what's, what's your I guess uh, background with westerns in general. Do you like them? Do you, do you actively dislike them? Like, where do they sit for you? Oh, I'm just kind of in the middle. If 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 people are sitting down to watch a western, I'd probably watch it, but I wouldn't necessarily actively go and seek it out. I'm kind of in the middle, kind of indifferent either way. Me. Okay. I think they can be fun. I I, th- I think it's an interesting setting. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it's not a genre that I necessarily have gone out and gone looking at. So yeah, this will be interesting. Okay, well, joining us as our guest who has seen the film, uh, I'll let him decide whether or not he's the bad or the ugly. It is <laughs> Mr. Scott Suffling. I think I'd like to be the ugly. Okay, Purely that's because fair. there's a lot of pressure uh, with being the bad. That's true, that's yes. true. Um, how are you doing, Scott? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, it's been a while since we've had you on. In fact, the last time we were on was for the first film in this trilogy, uh, A Fistful of Dollars. So um, this is the first time we've had you on uh since the outbreak of the COVID epidemic oh, yes. 
Um, as someone who works on a long ship, which is not not something I get to say very often, uh, but someone who works on a, sorry a tall ship, um, uh, how it's long and tall. It's, it, it, it I've is. I've seen both, her. Yeah. She's yeah. both. Yeah. yeah. As, as someone who works on a very big boat, um, <laughs> how has the how how has the the events of twenty twenty um, how have they affected you? Oh, it's uh, been a bit of a tough year. Uh, obviously, we had to shut down about three months worth of sailing. So we lost a bit of income and time there um, and it just sort of ended up in a drawn out sort of refit period. So I've been back at home for about the last six months, which is nice to be home, but um, yeah, also hankering for a sale. So we're hoping to get back on the water in September and everything sort of go back to normal um, for us. But yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's been sidelined us a little bit, but thankfully um, we're still afloat figuratively and literally, mm-hmm. so, and we've still got our jobs. Um, so yeah, but it's been, it's been a bit of time uh, shore-based for the last six months. Mm. And the good, the bad and the ugly. Yes. Uh, this is... How excited are you? Because I know how much you love <laughs> Westerns and specifically this trilogy. Just how excited are you to be able to watch this, have an excuse to watch this film? Uh, very, yes. Uh, it is one of my favourite films. Um, when people ask me, oh, what's your top you know, favourite films? I'm like, oh, it's probably either The Godfather or The Good, The Bad and The Ugly or you know, something like that. Usually I've got two or three other options bouncing around, but it's, it's one I never fail to mention. It's right up there. It's mm. a film I think that um, should be seen. Um, for especially anyone who's interested in filmmaking or wants to go into that sort of area of study, um, mm. it's a, it's necessary. Mm. So, and and other apart from that, it's just pretty good. Uh, I do appreciate that it's a very long film, and some people uh, these days might not have the patience for it. But it's, uh, in my opinion, it's yeah, it's, it's worth it. There's plenty of films that are super long that are great to watch, though. That's right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, and in a vague, non-spoilery sort of way, what can people like Ellen who have not seen this film be expecting? Oh, um, I think you're going to be expecting a lot of great cinematography, um, some great filming. So I think actively look for the shots that just make you go, whoa, okay. Because, yeah, this did pioneer a lot of that. Um, obviously, we touched on a bit of that with Sergio Leone's work um, previous to that. Um, you can expect a lot of gunfights, a lot of shooting, uh, a bit of tragedy, a bit of death. Fun. Uh, this sounds like my A bit of excitement, deal. yeah. It's, um, <laughs> this, out of, out of all the Westerns, Sergio Leone probably paints one of the more bleaker pictures of that time period mm. um so it is yeah it's probably more historically accurate than a correct lot of yeah so. that's yeah he's not saying this was a jolly time to be alive that's mm. for sure but it is a good story so is it more or less historically accurate than calamity jane <laughs> <sighs> yes <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You go with yes. Yeah. At any point, do Clint Eastwood or Lee Van Cleef talk about having just come in from the Windy City? Is that? Is that no, 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 no. I don't believe that. Now yet. I just really want to watch Paint Your Wagon. With you <laughs> yeah. That's true. Yeah. I'm going to say there's no singing in it, although I think there is at some point. Sorry, Ellen. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. That's okay. But have you, but have you seen Paint Your Wagon though? Uh, no, I haven't seen that one. Oh my god. I have not. When we do Paint Your Wagon, can we get Scott on? <laughs> yeah. Because Clint Eastwood is in it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I and that, that movie is weird mm. it is a weird show that's anyway. one that's for some reason sort of been written off in my brain as a, a non-essential <laughs> no no watch. that's fair i just think it would be yeah it's an interesting one and also because it's it's that kind of western thing but it's a lot it's i think it's a bit grittier than a lot of the other kind of western musicals because yeah. there were a f- quite a few of them because they kind of capitalized on the popularity of oklahoma and then it was like Calamity Jane and then Annie Get Your Gun and like all of those kind of things all coming out around a similar sort of time. Paint Your Wagon, 
Yeah. I must admit, when everyone's on, whenever anybody recommends, hey, you got to watch Pat Your Wagon, they always You just do think them. of the Simpsons episode? Sort of. And they, yeah. they, whenever they recommend it, they always do it with a massive grit on their face. Like, and, and you're going to hate this. That does tempt me a little bit. That goes, oh, I, I think I'm missing out on something here. They've got a big smile. They don't, oh, I don't, I don't want to. Yeah, you know what I mean. Maybe oh, one serious. Hmm. All right. Well, with all that being said, shall we watch The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly? Yeah, let's do it. Yes. We better get started or we will be here until like two o'clock in the morning. It is like. a long film. <laughs> yes. Okay. For those of you listening at home, pop in those DVDs. And hey, if you have to shoot, shoot. <laughs> We're going to watch The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Welcome back, everybody. We have just finished watching The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. I'm joined once again by my two guests, Mr. Scott Suffling. Hello. And Dr. Ellen Sears. Hello. She's like, howdy. Oh, yeah. Howdy. Uh, howdy. Yeah, a big yee-haw to everyone out there. Wow, um, this film is not that. No, it really isn't. <laughs> not at all. What did you think of it, though, Ellen? It was very interesting. Beautifully shot, especially considering the time period that it was made in. Um... I don't know that it's necessarily my kind of a film. There was there was a few good bits. It was just mainly very very long. Yes, uh, the um, version that we're yeah. watching is the extended, uh, the extended English language edition, which is three hours long. Yeah, what two minutes and fifty nine seconds according to two hours and fifty nine minutes. Yeah, it makes a difference. Three hours. Yep. Yeah. 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 Not not too far off three hour mark, um, which means that this version has obviously extra scenes that were shot and they're not used in the original theatrical release. Um, but as this was your, your first time watching it, mm. um, what what about this film uh, would you say was um, the thing that, that impressed you most? Because like cl- clearly it is a very well-made film. But... I, think, I think honestly it would have been the set pieces and the way they kind of worked with them, with mm. the cinematography, I think was really, really excellent. Like, the performances are like fine, they're great. You've got... Like the story's kind of like it just stuff just keeps happening. Hmm. It's it's kind of like okay we're on a we're on a, we're on a road trip to go and find the thing and it takes a little bit of time for everything to, like all the chess pieces to get onto the board and that it, it takes quite a bit more time then for them to kind of get to the next point and get to the next point and get to the next point. Hmm. Um, I feel like if this was made now, like if you were to remake it, which I don't think anybody would because they would get crucified. Hmm. Um, but I think if, if this one was getting made now, I think it would be a lot shorter. There would be a lot, it would just be like full of CGI battles. You know, I love practical effects. I loved all of the practical effects that they had. I think that they did an amazing job of just building that kind of world. Hmm. I think that was probably my favorite thing. And then seeing how they then filmed that and captured that. Yeah. And the way that the camera was moving and, just some interesting things that they were doing with like angles, but only occasionally. But watching it, I was like, oh, well, th- that's where this film trope comes from. That's where this film trope comes from. Mm. Um, there's the bit where they're beating the crap out of Tuco and they've got the band playing. And I'm like, yeah, I can I can absolutely see where Quentin Tarantino has just stolen all of his stuff from. It's very- <laughs> I was just watching it like, this is Reservoir Dogs. Mm. Like, this is the bit where he's playing stuck in the... Mi- and just and cutting the guy out. Cutting yeah. the guy out to pieces. I mean, it's, it's the same scene. Yeah, I, I think one <laughs> like, of the things re-watching this film, uh, Scott, for, for me, is just seeing how 
how influential it yeah. has been because yeah. big time. I mean, obviously, Ellen, as we were watching, the three people in a standoff thing. The I was like, yeah. and, and like the slowly the closing one. in, the, the the faster and faster cuts between the hand near the gun, the eyes getting mm. closer and closer in, and building that tension. Mm. And it's been spoofed a lot since then. Mm. You know that idea of the you know you zooming right in mm. and do 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 but I feel like it still works here. It's not gotten to the point where it's like, oh, this is kind of a bit naff now. Well, it's, it's the original. Yeah, well, that's, yeah. well, that's, well that's, that's the whole thing. And I think it still holds up, even mm. though it has been spoofed and people have kind of imitated it mm. so many times. I, I actually I really enjoyed it watching it with you, Ellen, because you haven't seen it before. Yeah. And I mean, I've seen it heaps and I've seen a lot of films and I like films, but I'm terrible at sort of drawing the connections between them. Whereas when you're watching that, you're looking at everything that comes up and says, oh, that's where they got this bit from. Oh, I've seen this in this film. And, yeah. You know, but it, yeah, you basically highlighted... To me, where everything's sort of not stolen, but the inspiration for a lot of other cool stuff in films has come from here. Yeah, for sure. And obviously, um, like Stephen spoke a little bit about the the Tarantino thing. He was talking about that yesterday because we were having a chat about the film um, without him telling me anything about what this film actually was. Mm. Um, but yeah, like a lot of iconic kind of shots. There's not necessarily a lot of like, you know, you know how sometimes in a film that there's like that very meme-worthy quotable line that you get. I feel yeah. like there's a lot of good one-liners in this, but none that have really hit a big cultural thing. It's more the mm. visuals in this that I think are more culturally. I I would agree with that. There's a there's a couple of lines which are well known, like um, you know, if you've got to shoot, shoot, don't talk. Mm. Like that's that coming li- through the window. Literally yeah. never heard that before. I feel as I've though, heard variants on it. Yeah, I, I feel as though the attitude behind those lines yes. is something. Watching this film, I was reminded a little bit of, obviously, lots of Tarantino films. There mm. were elements of um, Star Wars, uh, specifically the bit just before In Return of the Jedi. Yeah. When they're all standing around before Luke and R2-D2 get the lightsaber in the Jabba's fight over the Sarlacc pit. Yeah, that a few bits like that. Boom, boom, That felt very much like this. Done. Yeah. But this Done. film a little bit reminded me of The Guardians of the Galaxy hmm. in terms of... You've yeah, got yeah. these kind of like these three central characters in Tuco, Blondie, and Angel Eyes, none of whom are particularly good people, who are all kind of crossing each other and that and this kind of thing. And there were just elements of kind of their attitude and mm. their the way they none interact of them trust with each, each other. other. Yeah. yeah. They and all I, want the same thing. It felt a bit like that first Guardians of the Galaxy film. Obviously yeah. very different in terms of what they did, and obviously in Guardians. And the vibe and... Um it's more about these people coming together and becoming a found family. Whereas in this film, there's no suggestion that that found family is going <laughs> to happen. They are all dead in a ditch. But the exactly, yeah. they're all lone characters, and that's how they mm. like it. But I really, yeah. <laughs> I really um, think that yeah, that the influence that this film has had is quite remarkable. I'm curious to ask, did Ellen, did you find that a bit of a draining experience? Yeah, not just because of the length though, or do you think um, it's just the length? Most, mostly the length. I mean, look. It's there's. Do you mean like in terms of like the gore and the uh, like violence and stuff? Or, or? Does, does it does it feel like you've been on a like a long horse ride? It does example? feel like you've been on a long horse yeah. ride. Mm. Yeah, that's I feel always like... the feeling I always get from this film. Is at the end yeah. of it, I'm like, oh, okay, well, uh, wow, okay, mm. yeah, you know, like you're like you've yeah. gone a long way and arrived back at home again. Yeah, there is a little bit of that as well, and I feel like as well, like you've got that nice little rise up and then your big dip in the, in the middle where kind of like stuff starts going really badly for like our main two kind of people and then it kind of picks up again towards the end mm. and then there's that beautiful like tension filled ending with the three of them and I think there were some really nice moments of tension in this and the way that it's it's mm. shot really draws that out and again those are things that have been imitated and spoofed a lot since then and that that yeah 
Yeah, it was really interesting. I I I think it, I think it is because it is long because it is quite full on in terms of like there's just so much story to get through and there's so much it's kind of like you know it's kind of like reading Lord of the Rings where you've got to get through 60 billion pages of <laughs> reading about happens, trees and then this happens and yeah, then this yeah happens. you've got to you've, you've got to do 60 pages of reading about trees before anything actually happens in terms of the actual yeah. story and the thing feels a bit like that the, the thing about this film is it really same as the other dollars films but this film in particular I think does it it really luxuriates yes, in its very, setting. The, yeah. the fact is there's no dialogue spoken for the first 10 minutes. I know, the, the first guy very unusual. The first guy who says anything is Stevens, the um, the guy that Angel Eyes kills in yeah, the, at the farmstead, where he yeah. basically just asks him a question. But before that, so much story has been told. I forgot that this film opens with three guys who actually aren't that important to the story. But it looks as though they, they turn up at this town and it looks as though it's ooh, been abandoned. they oh, don't like ooh. each other. Yeah, you think and, they're going to have a shootout. Yeah. And like, oh, here's a typical Western. But then it, yeah. it goes further than that. And, and yeah, those those, ex, those um, amazing panoramas behind those characters and the mm. great set and the extreme mm. close-ups they have. Yeah, I and think the, guy really with, sets the, the guy with the scar on his yeah, face. Yeah, yeah. It, it just sets the scene too. for the whole rest of the film, really. Yeah. It's like, this is mm. what this is going to be like. Yeah, and they, co- they come together and then they quickly run into a saloon and you realise, oh, they're working together. And then... You get Tuco jumping out the window, and you get like a frozen frame of him before he jumps onto a horse and rides off, leaving very those Looney three for Tunes. Dead. Yeah. There's a couple of Looney Tunes moments in this. Yeah, maybe like the in most the graveyard and the, the biggest of which was um, Clint Eastwood firing a cannon at Eli Wallach <laughs> towards the end of the film. Yeah, for sure. But also that, like, yeah, the bit where he jumps out of the the the, the window goes at the beginning, the, the bit where he goes through the floor when that whole ha- the whole. Oh, the, sal- the, the, the hotel saloon. The hotel just like collapses. Yeah. The bit where he's in a I was like, oh, and there's the Blues Brothers. <laughs> yeah, but like the, the floor collapsing and you were like, oh, it's like the Blues Brothers because obviously you watched that recently on the podcast. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, it really is like the Blues Brothers, isn't it? So mm. there's another nice little nod there again. I think they got to have those bits in the film though because they're interesting. They're, you know, you can yeah. t- take them out and then I just don't keep... You don't have enough enjoyment of this film to... Mm. to yeah, and like the drunk, time. you know, captain at the end as yeah. well. He just turns up and it's like... You know, slobbers everywhere. Yeah, slobbers everywhere. And he's basically like, you know, you know, the one thing that's the same between us and the soldiers across the river, we all reek of alcohol. And it's mm. like, oh, wow. And interesting because we were talking a little bit during the film about this came out in the US in 66. Oh, sorry, in 67 in the US, 66. 67 in the in US, Italy. 66 um, originally. So, but when it was getting made, it was kind of like the, type, like the, the beginning sort of of the Vietnam War. And this really doesn't paint the doesn't paint the Civil War in a very good way, which is really Mm. interesting. I mean, the thing with... I enjoyed that. The thing with Leone's Westerns, and particularly in the Dollars trilogy, is that his viewpoint was that this was actually kind of not a great time Mm. for people, the people who lived in it. Clearly. Most of the conflict, whereas it's sometimes glorified in other Westerns, most of it, and this is dismal. Yeah. It is. It's really horrible. And I was like, yeah. It's the same in Fistful of Dollars. It's the same in For a Few Dollars More. You know what it it reminded me of a little bit? Mm. Was... um, Oh my god, what's it called? They shall not grow old. Watching that documentary, like the level mm. of like gore and horribleness and that, and just all the soldiers—that's what it kind of reminded me of a little yeah. bit, like the battle sequences. I was like, "This is yeah." And I think that's one of the really interesting things about this film and about the the Dollars trilogy in general is that most of the other westerns at the time, particularly the American produced westerns, mm. were very much um, glorifying that whole. 
yeah, like it, it was shown that it was a tough life, but it was a life worth living because there are all these good Christian John Waynes running yeah, around doing good Christian John Waynes and prostitutes. Woo. Yeah. Meanwhile, no women in here with speaking roles at all, except for that one woman who got the crap beat out of her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And gave up information, and then we never see her again. I was like, great representation of women here. Mm. But I feel like I feel like it, you know it's very much a story about these three dudes, and I I was a bit like throughout it because but I was also thinking you know again if this was made today, you know they would be like right how can we put some more women in here and make it like more diverse and do the stuff, hmm. and I don't know that it would necessarily work because I feel like it would very much detract from the thing because none of these dudes care about. Like there are no meaningful relationships. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They, they, they are all driven by and if they were in greed, there, greed essentially. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I think if they and I think if they were like, oh, like you know, there's no meaningful relationships here. But let's just shoehorn some female characters in here for them to have in the background or whatever. Mm. Then I feel like that would be almost yeah. worse. I think it's interesting because the other films in the Dollars trilogy, whilst not having like massive amounts of female representation do have more female characters that are relevant to the story. Mm. Um, obviously, in the first one, there's the sequence where... Um, I forget the names of any of the characters from that film, but where the <laughs> bandits um, are shooting up the house that's on fire and the the mother, like the, the matriarch, ma- the matriarch comes out and they shoot her in the street. And it's like awful and horrifying because this is showing how bad they are. But like I feel like she had more of a role in the story. Than any but, of the women in this yeah. one. <laughs> and similarly, in for, uh, for a few dollars more, there are... Female characters There's that are at least the sister character in that. Yeah, yeah. Um, even though she's it's, not massively present. No, she's you know a past figure, but yeah, it's, it's a motivational figure. Yeah, this this film. You're, yeah, this film. You're right. You've got the old lady in the bonnet who's like, oh no, it's terrible. You've got another one like you know the young mm. woman who's. I'm presuming she was a prostitute. The one they threw out of the wagon and. Yeah, the one who got beat up. Yeah, yeah she, was, up. she was. She yeah. was uh, Bill's girlfriend. His girlfriend prostitute. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. 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 And exactly. then there was the the wife on the farmstead whose yeah. husband and eldest child got killed by Lee yeah. Van Cleef. I, th- I, feel, I feel like the women in this are like, you know, kind of like, we are like moral and upright. I mean, I'm a prostitute, but also like, you know, I don't know what's going I'm on. I'm almost like, kind of glad that they're removed in this instance because it's yeah. such a dismal, bleak world. You almost mm. don't want to see him in it. <laughs> yeah, as I mean, bad as that sounds. the fact mm. is the only interaction any of those three characters have with a female character is when Angel Eyes beats... Yeah. Um, I think her name is Maria. Yeah. Um, and, and beats her to get information out of her. That's the thing. We don't even know what her name is. Yeah. All, all, all of the female characters are either not named or... She, she is named. She I just named, like, yeah. can't they're... remember um, what it was. Yeah, I, they I say it once know. and then it's like never again and then they're never in the film blah, blah, again. Blah. So, yeah. Who is a fresh this, young this... whore in the territory? Her place in that story is more important than her name. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, definitely doesn't pass the Bechdel test. New definitely not. not. <laughs> um, as, as a female viewer then yeah does that affect how you can engage with this film i mean a little bit i was a little bit like okay we got three dudes running around trying to get money like yeah i kind of get that thing but i wasn't like going like yeah like rooting for one of them or Hmm. you know yeah because i feel as though i feel i feel like if you put women in this and like kind of shoehorn them in and trying to give them a bigger role i Mm. don't think that it would necessarily work for this particular story in this particular film i also feel as though this and if you gender flipped it people would be so mad can you imagine if you did this with one of the main (laughs) three characters being a woman oh wow no no i would and i would like to cast that later on that would be brilliant (laughs) it would be brilliant but purists movie purists would like cry very sad man tears i think the, the thing is about this film though is i feel as though any of the characters who aren't Tuco, Angel Eyes, or Blondie mm. are very ancillary. I know we spend time For with sure. people like the Captain and Wallace, the big goon who's yeah. in the Union Army, but 
to be honest, they mm. really are all there as either like obstacles or plot advances. Yeah, um, pretty much. Because this this film is Always. is almost entirely about the interaction between these three these this the good the, the bad, bad and, the, and ugly. the ugly yeah um and obviously we spend the most time in terms of a relationship between those two between Tuco and Blondie um that's a lo- that's a really interesting little relationship that was fun it is I, I've I've heard this film called before um, Tuco's film this film is more about Tuco than either of the two characters he's yeah, the first one sure. you see he's the last one you see mm-hmm. he has the most lines. And he actually mm. has the biggest sort of character arc of any of them in the film. Mm. Whereas, but he's not a white guy. No, he's not. But no, he's a he's a Jewish man playing a Mexican, <laughs> uh, which is a really kind of interesting thing. This this um, ah the sixties. Yeah, because obviously Clint and um, Lee Van Cleef are playing are white actors playing white characters. Eli Wallach is is not uh, from Mexico, but mm. plays this part. Um, did it? Did it? First of all, did did you notice that? I guess like, did anything about Eli's performance make you go, this this feels odd or off or iffy? Um, I mean, look, I was kind of sitting there being like, this is like probably not a dude who is actually has been cast, you know, with his, like, like obviously he wasn't like a Mexican dude, but I was like, I mean, eh, like, yeah, I don't know. Sort of. I quite. I kind of assumed that he wasn't um, of Mexican heritage. No, he's from Brooklyn. Oh, uh, Jesus. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's really. It's. It's kind of hard with films from this kind of era as well, though, because, you know, that whole whitewashed casting was mm. really big, really, really big during yeah, this I mean, time period. Uh, yeah. At this time period, you know, you've got people like a few years before. You've got, you know, I, I would say much more egregiously. Somebody like Mickey Rooney playing a oh, Japanese yeah. neighbor in um, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah. You've got. Um, oh, thoroughly modern Millie. Um, John Wayne plays Genghis Khan. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, all, all, you, all you, these you're Brenner King and I. It was yeah. a big thing happening in musical theater as well. And mm. those musical films were still sort of. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Coming out at this sort of time period as well, so yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a big, it's a big issue that Hollywood and yeah. just in general the movie world had for a long, long time. I feel as though the good, the bad, and the ugly. The way it is cast is so fascinating. The way it's put together is so fascinating because mm. it's not an American production. It's not shot in America. It's shot primarily no. in Italy for the in- interior scenes, and then in Spain, rural Spain, for like the desert and the, mm. the battle scenes and things like that. Yeah, when we were in the desert, I was like, yeah, this doesn't look like Italy. <laughs> yeah. And the, the mixtures of the cast, obviously, like you know, um, your, your main three are American actors that have a name that can draw people in, mm. but they are pretty much like the only English-speaking actors in the film. It's a lot of Italian actors and a lot of Spanish actors who yeah. make up the rest of the roles. I think the dubbing was done really well mm. because mm. Stephen was telling me about that a little bit yesterday, Scott. Um, and I was like, okay, well, that's very interesting that they kind of did that. But yeah. it actually works pretty well. Like, yeah. it doesn't quite match up, but it's not any worse than, it like, does, watching an yeah. anime. It mm. does throw you, you off know. sometimes. A little bit, but yeah. Yeah, you pretty much get used to it pretty quickly. And, and yeah, but the whole the, the whole the whole thing is very ADR anyway. Mm. So mm. even the English speaking lines, a lot of them seem mm. like they were ADR anyway. Yeah. So it's kind of like, oh, this is kind of just the style of the film. This is just how it is. Yeah, and I, I do wonder if um, I, I do wonder if that maybe makes I, I, the the fact for, that for, for me the, it detracted a little bit from trying to follow along with stuff. No, yeah. But I think that's also because like. Yeah, I'm watching it like now in 2020 and da 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 where that's not really done. 
done as much. Yeah, yeah. I, I do wonder if... Um, I do wonder if Eli Wallach, one, absolutely nailing his acting, um, but also, mm. to the fact that so many of the actors in this film are sort of, like, portraying characters from different parts of the world than they're from. Yeah. I do wonder if that sort of almost kind of takes it away from, you know, um, issues that people do have with with other films from this time period um, in terms of people who aren't of that race playing characters from a different race. Mm. Um, But also I think it's interesting because I don't feel as though anything that Tuco did was specifically vilifying people from that area. I feel as though Tuco as a character is very mm. much a bastard because he's Tuco. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. Like, the nationality side of things is not was really not played important up. to him. Yeah. yeah. It, it does get touched on a bit, you know, that he's the filthy bandito Mexican style, mm. especially when he goes and visits his brother in the monastery. monastery yeah. And it's sort of like, you know, where we're from, you either become a priest or a bandit, and mm. those are my options. So it, it's almost, I wouldn't say defended, but it's sort of said well that's just the way he is because mm. that was yeah they've sort of you know? they've, yeah they've sort of touched on it and gone like yes we know this is a stereotype we're aware mm. that we're kind of playing into this yeah kind of yeah it's it, yeah it, i mean it is a tricky one retrospectively and obviously at the time i really doubt sergio leone was sitting there going oh is this appropriate because he was in a time period where people were yeah where playing, it was like, were, were doing things that i would argue are much more egregious mm, than, and in a lot of other films yeah. the, the dirty sort of silent bandito mexican types usually the baddie or the guy gets shot pretty quickly you know mm. whereas in this he plays one of the, the main title character. characters yeah. who are mm. thrown in with the other two and who you know you emphasize with and follow along through the mm. story so and i do have to say away from that just looking at it from purely performance-based things eli wallach's the best thing in he this did, film he does He's such a good funny. job yeah, yeah. I, uh, that's why I chose to be the ugly at the start. Because <laughs> by far, this is Tuco's film, in my opinion. Like the other two do their a great job, and it's mm. but Tuco is they're three very different yeah, characters as yeah, well. Because Tuco is obviously very like squirrely and like always like the big eyes and like looking around like what's going on like oh my god. And then you've got Clint Eastwood, Clint Eastwood doing his like stoic Clint Eastwood thing, mm. um, and then Lee Van Cleef is just kind of like. Quite stoic, but also like scheming evil, scheming evil, yeah. al- al- almost mustache chilling, but not quite. Yeah, that mustache looks like it was toiled just before the cameras rolled. Right, <laughs> yeah. it was very neat. He's very great. Um, I really forgot just how much of a villain he is in this film because I've not seen this for a long time. And mm. it's nice because he's not like a muhahaha villain. Like he's he, just he a does do bad that at one dude. Point. <laughs> After he shoots uh, the second soldier in the face yeah. um, he does that. with the pillow, he then goes. Before <laughs> <laughs> he blows out the but, light, yeah, that's that is the, the title piece of his character, though. Yeah, <laughs> I think. Yeah, I think he's a great villain, and he's a great villain specifically because he's not like one of those villains that are very camp and like you know. Because <laughs> yeah. normally the villain in these kind of western type things as well are like the really rich dudes. Mm. You know what I mean? But he's yeah. not really that. Yeah, I'd, I'd even argue that compared to the villain from. A Fistful of Dollars, I feel as though that villain is, although a very interesting character, is very much like clearly, I'm a villainous villain who villains. Whereas yeah. in this, Lee Van Cleef is... He's like, this is just who he's, I am. He's the same I'm just as, a bad dude. as Blondie and Tuco, but he is choosing to act in methods that he believes will get it, but he's choosing to mm. be evil. He's basically. used to doing what's necessary to get yeah. what he wants, but he now he's so used to doing whatever it takes he goes out of his way just to do it 
Yeah. Anyway, you know, like, mm. and like, yeah, because he didn't have to kill. They all kind of bounce off each other really yeah. nicely. He didn't have to kill the guy that sent him to kill Stevens when he shot him in the face. But he's like, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Yeah. yeah. yeah because the guy told him about the cash box, so he's like, I know why you wanted this information now. Mm. Yeah. Why do you need to be here anymore? <laughs> yeah, yeah d- you're you're nearly dead anyway. I am curious though about the fact that obviously these characters are known as the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm. I'm curious about Clint Eastwood's character Blondie being the good. Yeah, well, I think he's definitely framed as a good guy, as a good guy in quotation marks. Yeah, he does good things. He, he, yeah, he he does sometimes. <laughs> it, it's more the fact that. I feel as though he does more things that are not good than good. In yeah. terms of, I feel it should almost be called the victor, the bad, and the ugly. Because <laughs> the guy wins. Yeah. You know from the beginning. I, I feel like you probably know this, Alan. Clint Eastwood's going to win. Of course, Clint Eastwood's going to win. Yeah. He's Clint Eastwood. Yeah. yeah. Of course, he's going to win. He's the smartest. Yeah. He, yeah. And you know, he goes through that really tough time where he gets like, you know, sunburnt, and it's very sad. Like, yeah. You know, <laughs> he has his little. Oh, I tell you what, I bet there were a lot of women who went and saw this in the sixties who were just like, oh, like beating up Clint Eastwood. Oh my goodness, mm. you know. Particularly when he's got that little kitten. Yeah. Oh, and then yeah, and then they gave him a kitten. I was like, oh no. Yeah. I mean, uh, this is just catering to the. I, I do see what you're saying there, Stephen, because mm. yeah, he, he does. He does. He does. He does everything the other guys have to do, which is mm. ruthlessness to survive, basically. And yeah. that's that's why he's still alive. But I think the difference is he doesn't go out of his way to be ruthless. He, where possible, he holds. Yeah, holds about. He, you know, and like he, you know, uh, he 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 finds the soldier that's dying, and he puts his jacket over him to make him feel better, and then yeah, he gives and, him his yeah, cigar. And, and, and he watches the battle and goes, "I've, I've never seen so many men wasted so badly." Yeah. Like, he, like he's, he's clearly not the conscience of the film, but I, I feel as though he's only the good in comparison to the other two. Yeah, for I, sure. And I, I like it's it's interesting because I think he's a I think he's a really interesting protagonist, and particularly if you come into this having watched the other films as well, you mm. kind of know what the man with no name is going to do. He's going to squint. He's going to come up with a really clever plan. He's going to light a cigar. Every scene, uh, <laughs> and then he's gonna oh, shoot kept everyone. Natalia, we should have kept Natalia. I swear to God, yeah, so many. Um, but you're right, I, I, Scott. I feel as though this really is Tuco's film. Uh, I think he's he's a much more sort of compelling character because he sort of flips between um, Angel Eyes is um, ruthlessness and the the good aspects of Blondie because yeah. he he's very much out there doing things for his own gain. Um, and you know he like takes advantage of people and sh- you know shoots them. But at the same time, we see him like flip between sides and try and constantly be like conniving and like you're my best friend. And I then think as soon he's as more like yeah. what any viewer would be in this situation. Yeah, not know. not always on top of things, a hundred percent. But like, yeah. yeah. And I think there's certain points of this where he's quite cruel, quite gross, and oh yeah, quite I mean, quite quite cruel and like, it, and gross. He, and yeah, he's else. he's extremely cruel too. Blondie, like, yeah, yeah. but Absolutely. the reason he's doing that is because Blondie did the same thing About to him. History, yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like I feel like he takes it further though because he doesn't just, and I think that's part of the reason as well why you're like, oh, this guy's obviously worse than Blondie because Blondie's like, all right, I'm gonna let you loose in the desert with your hands tied, and Tuco's like, all right, I'm gonna let you loose in the desert and I'm gonna follow you and watch you get more and more like mm. watch messed up essentially. Death, yeah. yeah, and I'm like. Mm. That's pretty, pretty friggin' harsh, man. And then yeah. he was like ready for him to like just to let him die. And then it was like, wait, no, you have information that I want now. I'm gonna turn on a dime now. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, that greed, that under, that's his mm. main motivation as a character is greed. Yeah, he for wants sure. money. He wants Are you a way out me? of his horrible, rough, nasty life. He knows it's his shit. His life is as crap yeah. as as it is. 
Yeah. Um, there's nothing he can do about it except get the money. So that's all he ever thinks about. That's all his character goes for. And I feel like, well, I mean, that, that, I mean, that again reminds me of something like, you know, your Quentin Tarantino films. They're always looking for, like, you've always got people who are thieves and robbers and things trying to, mm. I want to get a better life for myself and for the people that mm. I love, so therefore I'm going to go for the money and I'm going to do these terrible things. It's the same kind of thing. So, yeah. again, that whole legacy of films and characters that have done that. I'm really intrigued, Scott, about the fact that this film... Uh, sort of breaks away from being a typical Western with its Civil War setting as well. Mm. Most cowboy films are not uh, in the middle of a Civil War. There there are some, certainly. There are some that deal with, like, the impact and the aftermath. But most cowboy Mm. films follow um, a single town location and the problems in that town and, like, baddies coming into town and causing problems and then good guys setting up for a final stand and that kind of thing. Mm. This film chooses to go, yeah... We've kind of already done that with the first two, so we're gonna we're gonna put it in the Civil War. I'm just kind of curious how you felt it, these these sort of two worlds, which although occurring at the same time, are quite disparate in our media. How they interacted? Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right when you say there that uh, most westerns take place in like a town or something like that, or mm. you know this area, or there's a stage that's set for the action to play out on. Um, in this film, there's there's no set stage. It travels, it moves, but you could argue the stage that is set out for it is that civil war. Mm. Um, mm. And of, obviously, it's depicted multiple times. It's obviously the the thing that's um, creating all the up uproar and mayhem and confusion around them, um, putting obstacles in their path. Mm. Um, it's it's kind of which is interesting because they're obviously it's it's nice to have it have have somebody be involved in a big war plot like that like the war is happening around them but they're not really big key players in it mm. and they get dragged into this kind of no name battle with a no name captain sort yeah. of thing that's not really no name bridge they, massively yeah. important you know but it's just kind of like it's almost like the war is just like a backdrop thing like it's not actually important yeah. it's just like this is just in the way this I, is I just think, annoying yeah i think the i think the war is is important in this film mm. I, I think it's the as we were saying earlier, the main driving plot point behind this story is that two hundred thousand dollars. It's the greed. It's the gold. It's the yeah, the sure. dream at the end of it um, that they, you know that these guys can make their fortune finally and not have to live this horrible yeah. life in this horrible place anymore. The war's but, just an inconvenience. <laughs> yeah, and and at, but as they as they chase that goal, they get dragged through all this stuff. Yeah. The world that's in flames, the battles that are going on, the, the you know, mm. the people who are missing limbs everywhere, the, people the who are hospitals. Mm. Yeah, people who are displaced, you know, um, people who are desperate. They, they get dragged through all of that towards mm. this goal at the end. And as they go, you know, uh, I, I suppose Clint Eastwood's the only one who sort of looks around as they go and just sort of goes, jeez, what's going on here? Mm. And as a viewer, you get dragged through it as well. So mm. it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting in that it's just a... Like I don't want to say backdrop. It's it's more than a backdrop. It's mm. it is the scene that is set for it. Mm. It's it, it. I suppose it's as a set. But it's also not the focus of the film. That's the whole that's, thing. Yeah, that's it. It, I, it. it affects the whole framing of the film because that was yeah. that's kind of like the setting, and they keep running through it. But it's not the focus of it, which I think is really interesting. Because normally in a war film, it's like the focus is on the mm. war. The mm. main characters are involved in the war. These guys aren't really involved no, in the war. No, I think it's impertinent. They, they have yeah. to step over so many smoking, dismembered, charred bodies, mm. um, yeah. figuratively and literally, all the yeah. way through this film to get to their goal at the end, mm. which is just cash. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I think that... The American, potentially, yeah, the the American, American dream. dream. <laughs> a, what is it built on, you know? 
yeah. built on a lot of dead bodies. It's a bit of a more pertinent picture then, the more you think about it. Mm. I feel as though using the Civil War as the setting is quite a, a sort of an ingenious stroke, just in terms of keeping the stakes quite high. Yeah. Particularly with this being the third in a trilogy. Um, you know, it, people who'd been to see the the first two films would be like, all right, Sergio, impress me. Like, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. And this this ups that ante. Like, it takes the the sort of smaller scale, but still equally intense um, setting of the first film, which is basically based around a single town with, like, two rival families, and expands it out into this war. And mm. the war is not reflected on in terms of why is it good why is it bad i don't think slavery is mentioned once like which is usually discourse around the civil war it is simply used as a way of going like this is a world that is in chaos and kind of makes the going for the money motive and their greed almost more justified because they are three they're desperados they're three people in desperate situations Mm. they yeah, and the world's can... gone to shit around them and they're yeah. like, well, how do we fix this? Well, the only way that you can actually get ahead in this world is if you've got money. Get so money let's get, get, get some yeah. money. Mm. We should talk about Ennio Morricone because oh, yes. he's the reason we're here. Um, mm. Talking about this particular film this week. Um, he's done, uh, obviously, a butt-ton of uh, film scores. He's he's done lots of fantastic, um, memorable um, scores and tracks and things like that. But I don't think he's he, he i don't think he tops this I, I'm, I'm just going to put it out there he's mm. got he's done some incredible scores i love john carpenter's thing and i think the music in that is so important to how it works john carpenter who obviously does his own scores a lot of the time went morricone no you can do this one like that kind of <laughs> thing like that that's how much respect this man was held with but um i, I suppose as a first time viewer ellen you you knew about at least the iconic title track. Oh yeah, no, no. I know that. I know yeah. the main theme. But obviously, how, everybody knows that. The... But how how did the rest of the film and the music sort of? Uh, how was it for you as a first time viewer? Yeah, it was good. I mean, I wasn't sitting there like this is amazing, and I think I'd have to listen to the soundtrack to kind of get a better sense of like the way that they've used specific themes mm. for specific places and people and things, and figuring out where those musical kind of light motifs are mm. because it's. It's difficult. I feel like it wasn't overpowering, which sometimes you can get with like I mean, you get that a lot nowadays in a lot of like action films mm. where the music's just like blah 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 and you just yeah. I just feel like my eardrums are getting blasted with brass. But yeah. this is very stripped back. You've got that beautiful doom 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 drum beat going mm. behind it, which is just very yeah, it's it's very recognizable. Um and yeah, I think the music was used really well. In this film, it didn't it didn't overpower it. Um, it's very iconic, obviously, and I think it's because it's got a very unusual sound. It's not like there's there's no other big movie theme like this. Lots of others have kind of imitated hmm. to an extent since I think. But yeah. yeah, I think it's I think it's very I think it's a very iconic theme, and I think hmm. it is really yeah, it was good. And Scott, obviously, having seen the other films in this trilogy and heard more of the, the music. Um, it, it does carry on that tradition of, of what the first two films set up. But um, for, for you, where does it sit? Is, is this the, the peak of Morricone's music for these films or, or, or is it not? Like, where do you sort of sit on that? Is it the peak of his music for films? Mm. No. Oh, Oh, what is the peak? Oh, you want me to elaborate? No. <laughs> uh, That's why we got you on. Yeah. No, I think I think Ellen. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That I think one of the things I hear in this film more than anything is the silence. 
the mm. scenes where there isn't any music mm. um, draw your attention quite a lot. And I think that says a lot about the score for this film. Yeah. Um, the, the silent scenes where, you know, just someone scratching the dirt or digging or, you know, some staring at someone else. When there's quiet, it makes you pay attention. And I, that's and it, almost, that sounds like it would be a detraction from the soundtrack. Mm. But no. really it's because... No, the, it, it highlights it more because mm. moments where there's, it pulls away and there's nothing except for the sound... And there was two moments where they specifically pulled the sound design back, and it was when they had the soldiers marching and they stopped, mm. and he heard the jingle of the spurs. Yep. Which oh, yeah. was which is very like that moment of silence. And it's like I heard the spurs. Well, there's two kinds of spurs, you know. Yeah. And then the other one, um, of course, is when they're playing. The band is playing while Tuco's getting beaten up, and they're saying, you know, the music will keep playing. Yeah. Until they're finished with him, essentially. Mm. Yeah, but and then they stop, quite... and it's like you keep playing, like mm. you keep on fiddling, fiddle boy. Yeah, but yeah. they're quite exact examples of diegetic sound that are exactly. in, in the film. Whereas o- often just for artistic choice, when the music goes down and you just hear the wind yeah. over a, a nice yeah. shot, or mm. you just hear this player shuffling their feet over another nice, mm. beautifully framed shot, mm. I think it makes it makes you look at and enjoy the visuals of the film more, more. When, when it's quiet as yeah. well, and it, it snaps your attention. Vi- but but to, with the soundtrack, um, mm. I think the, the one before this, the one the Dollars Trilogy haven't done yet, um, I find the music in that mm-hmm. more engaging, catchier, mm-hmm. more meaningful to the story. Yeah. Um, but, but by far, if I mm. if you ask me to sit down and watch any sequence of any Western ever, I'd say, yeah, give me the last uh, fifteen minutes of Good and the Bad and the Ugly, please, because yeah, um, the scene in the graveyard is from from the mi- minute uh, Eli Wallach enters that graveyard mm. till the minute uh, you know Clint Eastwood rides off in the sunset um, is probably yeah my favourite. 15 to 20 minutes of filmmaking with music shots, film, everything put together. It is remarkable. The end. Yeah. It is. Re- rewatching it, I was... That's set, my God. Yeah, I was so excited to, to when it went... As soon as... Because it, it always surprises me. I always forget that the, the Looney Tunes-style cannon shooting uh, sequence is literally right before, because yeah. he, he gets uh, the second cannonball fires from, from Blondie, um, Tuco dives out the way and as he's rolling he hits a rock and he realises oh wait this is a tombstone and the camera pulls up and there's just this massive graveyard yeah. thousands yeah, of graves and like you say the yeah, penny drops there yeah yeah. That's... the rest of it is like oh here we go and <laughs> yeah. then there's so many graves and go, he runs around and go, the music builds and then it stops and yeah, then... viewers could be mistaken for thinking the shootout in the you know, the dusty town with explosions is sort of the climactic bit of the film yeah they're wrong <laughs> yeah it's, it's almost like a good yeah like a good um a good feint, I guess, because that's where, yeah. uh, like, films previously in this fa- trilogy. fake ending or anything, yeah. but, you know, that you expect they're going to have the shootout with yeah. um, potentially Lee Van Cleef there, but it's not, yeah. he's gone, and then they have to get across the river as, after that as well. Yeah, and um, I, I have to say, yeah, the the choice of the shots, the, the music, and just the... the spinning very fast shots. Yeah, yeah. The, the Ecstasy of Gold is the title of that track that plays mm. over, so it's, yeah. it's basically a personification of... Um, desperate, of, oh, desperate greed, yeah. yeah, and mm. just searching for that thing that's going to change your life in an instant. You know? Yeah, and it's it's just so beautifully done, and yeah, the way they shoot, you know, where everyone's hands are, how relaxed they are. You can uh, tell. Yeah, yeah. As, as a first time viewer, Ellen, did you? Obviously, there's an assumption Clint Eastwood will win. It's a western. Yeah, but did um, I guess did the body languages sort of convey the fact that you felt he was in control the entire time. Yeah, or, or, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because you've got, obviously, um, Lee Van Cleef is kind of like, 
going backwards and forwards and almost like stroking his belt and you've got that really extreme close-up and I was like, oh, he's missing a tip of his finger. It's a nice little detail. Mm. Um, and then I think that Eli is obviously very like squirrely and shifty and like freaking out. And I he think that's partially, know, yeah. I think that's a lot of that comes down to the fact that he's like, oh, I know what Blondie's like, you know, like I know that he's brilliant shot. They're sizing mm. each other up. Yeah, for sure. And then he finds out that his gun is has no bullets in it. And he's like, when did you do this? Like, how did, why? He's like, yeah, I did it yesterday. And you didn't notice, you idiot, yeah. essentially. That, like, that build with no. them sizing each other up. And then, you know, like, uh, it, you can sort of sit, put yourself in Tuco's shoes there. Like, all right, is it, who's who's he going to shoot at? Who's he going to shoot at? Like, yeah. Um, really, Lee Van Cleef, who, what he decides to do is the biggest question mark. Because you're pretty sure Blondie is going to go for... Uh, Angel Eyes, and mm. you're pretty sure Tuco out of the two of them is probably going to go for Angel Eyes because you know mm. he's tried to kill him once before already. Yeah. And in terms of Angel Eyes, you don't know who he thinks is the bigger threat. He knows mm. that Clint Eastwood's probably better with a gun, but he knows Tuco's probably more, more likely desperate. to try and kill him. Yeah. yeah. So I think if you watch closely in the end of the draw, Angel Eyes goes for Tuco, mm. Tuco goes for Angel Eyes, and obviously Clint Eastwood knows one of those two things is not a threat anyway. Yeah. So he's so, just like, he's onto it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, it's it's lovely. I love the fact that he shoots the hat and the gun into the grave yep. that um, Angel Eyes falls into. What? Just a final little Just like screw insult. you, man. Yeah. yeah, and I also then yeah really enjoyed. Um, even though I think it slightly undermines his his thing of being the good, him setting up. Um, although it's kind of like turnabout's fair play. Um, he, yeah. you know, Tuco did the same thing to him in the hotel. He sets up Tuco to hang himself from the tree. A lot of narrative symbolism. Yeah. And then does come back and shoot him down. But he's also now left him tied up in a graveyard with these bags of money he can't really move. <laughs> um, and he's stuck in the and, middle of nowhere. And if he hadn't shot him down, he would have been hung and he would have died looking at the goal, just staring uh, yeah. at it. Yeah, I think like, it comes... Oh man, that's hard. Yeah, I think it comes back to, to the thing where Kalindus is like, all right, you've been a bad boy. You're not a great person. Mm. I'm going to just leave you like this because... That's probably what you deserve as a human being. That guy's dead, and he deserves to be in that grave. That's mm. done. I'm just going to ride off in the sunset now. And He's what kind of the judge. To you that... is not my problem. Yeah. If you die, you die. If you live, you live. Get it's not up to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so. It's a mercy lovely. not killing. Mm. It's it's so. It's, and by lovely, I mean like it's so lovely in terms of how it's written and the yeah. way the way it falls out it's almost as though and narrative symmetry yeah. because you've got so many things mm, yeah. you, you get it once and then you get it again later you get mm. it once and then you get it again later you get it once and then you get it so everything kind of bookends it it's yeah it's overt it's not subtle, subtle but it's yeah um, mm. and it's, it's not and it's not rule of threes generally speaking it was bookended it was this happened at the beginning so therefore it has to happen again sometime mm. at the Here end is in the conclusion yeah would you guys like some trivia about the good, the bad, and the ugly? I love some trivia. All right, all of this trivia is sourced from IMDb, so if it's not true, I don't blame me. <laughs> uh, according to Eli Wallach, when it came time to blow up the bridge, Sergio Leone asked the Spanish army captain, uh, because they were using the Spanish army as uh, labour and extras. Labor, so they built. I mean, why wouldn't yeah. you? Yeah, they built the graveyard set, they built the bridge, they built all that stuff. Um, he asked the Spanish army captain in charge to trigger the fuse as a sign of gratitude for the army's collaboration. Mm. They agreed to blow up the bridge when Leone gave the signal "Vi," which is go, uh, over the walkie-talkie. Unfortunately, another crew member spoke on the same channel saying the words "Vi Vi," meaning it's okay, proceed, to a second crew member. The captain heard this signal, thought it was for him, and blew up the bridge when no cameras were running. No! Did they reveal the bridge? 
Leone was so upset he fired the crewman who promptly fled the set in his car. The captain was sorry for what happened and was so sorry he promised Leone that the army would rebuild the bridge to blow it up again on the condition that the fired crewman be rehired. Oh, wow. Leone agreed, the crewman was forgiven, the bridge was rebuilt, and the scene was successfully shot. That's so nice. Mm. That's kind of a little bit like the end of Return of the King with Buddy... Sean Astin coming back without his vest and they're filming like the big emotional climax of the film. Yeah. And then they had to redo it all again because he came back from lunch and didn't have his vest on. And so the continuity was screwed. <laughs> and they were like, Sean Astin! Yeah. And they had to do that scene like, they had to shoot it like five times or something stupid like that. Oh dear. Oh but man. yeah. Also, how um, would you be being that guy though, like messing up the bridge blow up? Oh my God. Yeah. Um, big practical and like, effect like that. That's Christ. a big explosion. We saw it. Yeah. And a potentially yeah. fatal explosion had Clint Eastwood been a couple of feet to the right because oh God, that yeah. rock just... And rocks flying everywhere. Yeah, shoots yeah. out. But again, it's like... Um, Tuco almost getting his head knocked off by the train. Um, like, th- this film didn't have the best OH in it. <laughs> it was the 60s. Mm. Oh, uh, boy. In the gun store, everything Tuco does with guns was unscripted. Nice. Uh, Wallach knew very little about guns, so his instructor. <laughs> was instructed to do whatever he wanted. Most of the storekeeper, Enzo Petito's bemused reactions in the scene are genuine. Uh, like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, the scene where Tuco shoves the open clothes sign in his mouth was also Eli Wallach improvising. And the dude's just, like, so done by that point. He's yeah. just like, whatever, I just want this day of filming to be over. It is an excellent scene. I do really like that one. Yeah, I really love um, I really love that story. Um, shout out, yeah. Uh, I, I mentioned this to you guys. You haven't seen John Wick three, but if you do, if any of the viewers do go see John Wick three mm-hmm. and also watch that scene, you will get it. <laughs> you, yes. You'll get it right at the start of that film as well. Yeah. So, um, um, Clint Eastwood obviously towards the end of that film picks up his uh, famous poncho. Um, the poncho was uh, used. That poncho was used for all three of the Dollars trilogy films. Without replacement or cleaning. Great. So, so it was like proper. Pretty, yeah, that's mm. what you do with a poncho. Yep. It would have been a little bit rank, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I got a poncho from 2009, which I don't. Oh, no, I think I have washed it once. Do you still have your poncho, Stephen? Uh, my brother has it, but yes, I do still have my so, poncho, mm. technically. I could fetch it. Uh, poncho yeah. boy. The viewers yes. might now realize that there are, we may be fans of this film or genre. <laughs> I, I look, I like a poncho. It was more that it was for sale and it looked, it was nice and colourful. It was like an orange one with pencils. Oh, yeah. And I was like, you know what? I don't own a poncho. I was 20. <laughs> oh. When I bought mine, yeah. I actively searched the store for one that was as close to Clint Eastwood right. as I could possibly get. Nice. Yeah. Didn't you, um, I feel like I went to a party once and you were dressed up as like Poncho Man or something like that, weren't you? Uh, Tequila, yes, Man. Tequila, Tequila Man. Tequila Man, thank yes. you. Yeah. The and hero you, yeah. slash villain. <laughs> <laughs> yes the uh, good the bad and the ugly yes, yeah, that, which yeah. is the morning after <laughs> yes. too much tequila that, that is the poncho that I, uh, yeah. that I purchased in South America Tuco's line uh, when you have to shoot shoot don't talk was also improvised by Eli Wallach and apparently caused the whole crew to burst out laughing Eli was a little perplexed because he thought that what he said was pretty sensible and he didn't mean for it to be a joke um, so he was a bit bemused when everyone started laughing at the line but they liked it enough and kept it in so good stuff Eli um, Ennio Morricone's iconic theme music was designed in places to mimic the sounds of a howling coyote. Originally, Morricone didn't want to use the trumpet, but Leone insisted. Along with the electric guitar and acoustic guitar and the Tarzan yells, the ah, that kind of Which stuff. Which is just the noise that Tuco makes at the end when he's like, ah! yeah. Uh, <laughs> they combined with the trumpet and obviously formed the most distinctive part of the soundtrack. Mm. Uh, Leone, yeah. 
famously Leone wasn't always on board with what Morricone wanted to do with mm. the soundtrack. But then he'd go away, make it come back. He'd listen to it and go like, yeah, it's, no, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. We'll go with that. I guess you know what you're doing. Uh, Eli Wallach almost poisoned himself on set uh, after he drank acid. <laughs> I was going to say, after he drank the bath salts, because <laughs> he's brushing his teeth with the bath salt bath. I was like, oh, dude, no. no. It's actually in the graveyard scene at the end. Um there was acid that was used to burn the bags filled with the gold coins so that they would rip open easier when struck with the spade. Uh, Wallach, did lick it? Wallach didn't know that the acid had been poured into a lemon soda bottle. Oh. So he thought it was like lemon soda. Oh, shit. Uh, he ended up having to drink a lot of milk and uh, film the scene with a mouth full of sores. Oh, Owie. Mm. Owie. Yeah. That's, that's yeah, bad occupational health and safety yeah, as well. Don't, They're lucky Don't you can dangerous liquids into drinking and people. Yeah. Oh, no. For the scenes where Angel Eyes interrogates uh, Maria, the prostitute, for information about Bill Carson, Lee Van Cleef was appalled by the fact that he was required to actually hit Maria, uh, the actress whose name was uh, Rada Rasimov, and he complained, I can't hit a woman. Rasimov replied with, don't worry, I'm an actress. Even if you slap me for real, it's no problem. But Van Cleef uh, further stated, I know but I can't. As a result, a stunt double was used for the shots where Rasimov was slapped and were intercut with shots of Cleef. Uh, As he later put it, quote, there are very few principles I have in life. One of them is I don't kick dogs and the other is I don't slap women in movies. Why do you have to put those two things together? I mean, it was good principles, but... Good good principles, but putting them that way makes it sound like women and dogs are equal. Yay. I I mean, good good thing that he was like, I'm not slapping this woman. He said the dogs first. Oh, yeah, good, great. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, no, look, good dude for being like, I'm not slapping a woman. She's like, just do it, it's fine, it's for real. Like, you know, go for it. And he's like, no, nah, not yeah. doing it. Yeah. Good look, on you. I, I'd like to think that it's a given that you don't kick dogs and you don't slap women. Yeah. Just in general, I don't think you need the proviso in movies at the end, <laughs> like he includes. It makes it sound like if the cameras are off, he's just walking around slapping everyone. But, yeah. Yeah. I suppose you can walk around later and somebody's like, oh, Liam and Cleef, I liked you in that film where you slapped that woman. He's like, wasn't technically me. <laughs> mm. Yeah, but you know, was a body devil. But you know, I, I'm also glad that they were able to get in some, like a stunt performer, to yeah. to do the scenes, and arguably maybe do them safer because they're a stunt performer, correct? And they would know how to control filmed hits like that better. Yeah, for sure. Uh, when Eli Wallach arrived in Madrid, all the hotels were full. Uh, Clint Eastwood invited him to sleep over at a friend's house, and they ended up sharing the same bed. Wallach's wife, Anne Jackson, told him that he could now boast he was the only man to sleep with Clint Eastwood. That's so funny. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. I just like the idea. He's like, just come bunk up with me. It'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) We'll go tops and tails. (laughs) You want a little pillow wall in the middle there? I don't know when I last washed my feet, though. So do you feel lucky, punk? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, By the time filming had completed. Clint Eastwood had grown a little bit tired of Sergio Leone's perfectionism and demands. The two never worked together again after this film. Uh, That was it, even though Leone tried to get Eastwood to appear in Once Upon a Time in the West, which was a couple of years later. Mm. Um, After three films, though, I could imagine, particularly if it was as grueling um, for for Eastwood, given that he's the star of all three of them as well, Mm. I could see him going, you know what? I'm good. Yeah, I've worked with bad directors before. Well, not not that not I'm saying that this was a bad director, but no. when you've got somebody who's like very specific about what they want, yeah, like you are going to do these things to do the thing that I want to do, it can get a bit grating. 
No, I think the word you used there was perfectionism, and it shows in the film. Oh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. But also, yeah, if I, if yeah. Mm. Uh, speaking of more issues between Eastwood and Leone, um, filming filming took a short delay when Clint Eastwood refused to turn up for work until Leone agreed to his $250,000 fee in addition to a new Ferrari. Ooh, I want a new wow. Ferrari, Italian mm. style. Wow. I wonder okay. if he's still got it. I mean, it'd be like a 50-year-old car at this point. It could, yeah. He could still have it. He probably sold it the next film he did. Who knows? Mm. Wow. That's a lot of money for that man back then. Yes. It's actually more money than they were after from, from the grave as well. <laughs> yeah, now that you mention it. That's mm. interesting. Uh, as a non-smoker, Clint Eastwood hated smoking the cigars, and Sergio Leone often did multiple takes. According to Eli Wallach, uh, Eastwood would sometimes tell Leone, you better get it. I'll try and do the voice. You better get it this time, because I'm going to throw up. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I've seen I've seen people do like heavy smoking for like film stuff, and then be very very ill the next day because they're yeah. not smokers. It's mm. just not a good time. It's such a big part of his character, though. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah oh, I'm surprised that he's a non-smoker. No, mm. go, no wonder he was like, I don't want to work with this guy anymore. He makes me smoke too much. <laughs> like, get on him. I'd be like, nah. Uh, another, another trivia point, which actually maybe goes towards my uh, the good maybe not being so good, is that. Clint Eastwood kills more people in this film than Tuco and Angel Eyes combined. <laughs> that we know of. Um, know. Well, that we see. How yeah. many yeah. of those people are actively trying to kill him at the same oh, time? Oh, a few, though? but even so. It was self-defense, yeah. it's fine. Blond- Blondie kills 11 people during this film. Um, Angel Eyes kills um, three, and Tuco kills six. Yeah. So mm. between them, 20 people. But So it's actually inverse, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. I just, I'm just saying, it's, you know, the messaging is a bit off sometimes. Nah. Uh, Charles Bronson was offered the roles of both Tuco and Angel Eyes. Um, the latter uh, he was offered because Leone feared audiences would not take kindly to Lee Van Cleef going from the fatherly likable Colonel Douglas Mortimer from the previous film to the sneering villain in this one. Uh, Charles Bronson declined both roles as he was busy in England filming The Dirty Dozen. The main thing I learned from that was The Dirty Dozen was shot in England, which I had no idea. Oh, there you go. In the 1960s, Hollywood still followed the Motion Picture Production Code of 1930, also known as the Hayes Moral Code, especially with Westerns. This movie broke many, if not all, of those standards. After it was released, Hollywood uh, had to change its moral standards to compete with such foreign-made movies. And I think that's a really sort of interesting thing about this that film. Is, yeah. Because mm. people bloody loved it. It broke the system. Yeah. yeah. Um, system, I feel yeah. as though this film broke the system, and then the thing that ultimately killed the Western came along a few years later with Blazing Saddles. Yeah. Blaz- like, I, I feel like this film broke the sort of traditional John Wayne-style Western of being like, but we can do them even grittier. And then Mel Brooks just pulled the pants down and (laughs) just kind of went, look, this is dumb and stupid and kind of killed that. Mm. Killed the Western for a long time, I would say. I think it's coming back now a little bit, like that kind of genre in terms of mostly in like series, like um, streaming series on Netflix and things like that. What's that one that um, came up recently, which is about the town with the mining men and they all go down and they all like die. That was a TV show. Yeah, the TV show. That was Godless. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. That looks interesting. And mm. it's basically just a town like full of women because all their husbands and died everybody in just die yeah. in mine. Yeah. They, they've done a few redo. They've done like 310 to Yuma and The Magnificent Seven again sort mm. of in the last 10 years. So, so they, yeah. they did sort of filter back through again. But but they never, uh, they, they, they can never go back to what they were, which was white hat good guys, black hat bad guys. That's it, yeah. Um, 
you know that kind of thing and, yeah. and that's good i would argue um the movies have evolved <laughs> yeah um but i think this film is and the two that preceded it was so crucial for that um yeah. Ennio Morricone's soundtrack album stayed in the charts for over a year, his oh, most damn. commercially successful movie score. Oh, well, so, there you go. Well yeah. done, Ennio. The screenplay is co-credited to the screenwriting team of Aginor Incaracci, apologies for any Italians if I'm getting this wrong, and Forio Scapelli, who were known for writing comedies. To Leone's displeasure, they wrote a comedy western, uh, and very little of what they wrote ended up in this film. <laughs> And the other comedy bits were because of Eli Wallach. Yeah. <laughs> Just making things up. Yeah. Uh, the trumpet theme for the Mexican standoff in the graveyard was inspired by El Deguelo, a traditional Mexican piece adapted from a Spanish composition that was also used as a military bugle call. Mm. The name refers to the cutting of the throat and is used to indicate Ooh. that no quarter will be given. El Deguelo was played over and over by the Mexican army during the late stages of the Battle of the Alamo, indicating its mm. intention to slaughter the defenders. Wow, yeah. that's crazy. I didn't know that. But yeah, they took that and sampled it and used it in this track, which I think is absolutely brilliant. Um, the large crevice in the Rock Ridge where Tuco f- finds Ridge. Blondie. Yeah, not... Rock not, Ridge. Not that Rock Ridge. <laughs> uh, the, yeah, the large crevice in the... Rock Ridge, where Tuco finds Blondie's first campfire whilst tracking him down, is the exact same crevice where Eastwood and Van Cleef meet after the bank robbery in A Few Dollars More. Same oh, wow. location. Uh-huh. They're probably like, this is a good rock. Yeah. Let's yeah, do it. Good spot. Let's do it. Uh, the skeleton found by Tuco inside the wrong coffin in Sad Hill was a real human skeleton. That was actually Arch Stanton. Uh, no, I don't have the name of who it was, but a deceased Spanish actress wrote in her will that she wanted to act even after her death. Oh, is that like that dude who bequeathed his skull to the Royal Shakespeare Company and David Tennant used it? Yeah, I mean, there's been about 10 people that have done that, but yes, it's, that's kind of same thing. That's great. I should do that. But yeah, that's, that's real bones, real bones in there. (laughs) That would have very upset the Hayes Code. Uh, yeah, yeah, they had a very strict no bones and yeah, no bones, <laughs> no, no bones. No actual deceased people in the yeah. film, please. No bones, no boners. That's that's what we're saying. <laughs> uh, mm. And finally, some trivia about Ennio Morricone because he's he's why we're here. Obviously, we're, we're marking his incredible career. Uh, a couple of points about him: uh, he refused to move to Hollywood on several occasions, despite being offered a villa by a studio more than once. Uh, obviously, he was in. Uh, or involved in so many films like it would make sense for him to potentially be living in the area but he, he liked where he was and he just did, and you know what I, I wouldn't particularly want to live in Los Angeles um, not not because I have any great issue with the place but just it I've, is a dumpster fire of a place yeah some it's people yeah I've, I've not been properly I've been for their airport it was busy I'd love to go and see the place <laughs> properly um, maybe not right now but nothing yeah, true <laughs> But, that's not yeah. going to Los Angeles right now. <laughs> but, but I can kind of get him going, no, I can make my music where I am. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he also composed the official theme for the 1978 World Cup held in Argentina. So, you know, Interesting. had a few non-film gigs here and there. Mm-hmm. And at the age of 87, he became the oldest winner of an Academy Award in 2016 mm-hmm. for his score of The Hateful Eight, which was his only Academy Award win. Wow. Uh, that was, and funnily enough, that was a Tarantino film. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I haven't actually seen The Hateful Eight. Mm. Yeah, people have said various things about it. So I yeah. He, he has since been beaten uh, as the oldest winner because uh, two years later, at the age of 89, James Ivory won um, an Academy Award for uh, Best Original Screenplay for Call Me By Your Name. Hmm. 
But even so, um, Morricone kicking it even late in life, and um, it, it what a way to go with yeah. that. Yeah, it it is it is a bit sad. In so much as someone who's ninety one passing away it can be sad. He had a good innings. Like he's at an extremely so good he's innings. A, so he he would have been the same age as Clint Eastwood then. Clint Eastwood is ninety at the moment, so he's a year older. Right. Okay. Yeah. So Clint Eastwood. Yeah. So Clint Eastwood is the same age as my grandma then. Yes, so the other, the third dead. famous figure associated with this film. No, no, but I'm just trying Relevant to figure personal it out. I'm, link. Come on. I'm just trying. I'm just trying to figure out the maths in my head, which means that Eastwood was born in 1930 and Morricone was born in 29. Yes, nice. interesting. So, the with financial all that, crash. Yes, with all that being said, yeah, it's time to score the film, and there are two types of people in this review: those who have seen the film before, and those <laughs> who have not. Coming through the window. Sorry, uh, <laughs> coming through the window. Yeah. Uh, Ellen, you are coming through the window, having not seen the film. <laughs> what score are you going to give *The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly* out of ten? I'm going to give it seven people jumping through a window. <laughs> out of a lot of people came in and out of windows and disguise yeah. like come on um, seven seven out of ten I think okay. I, I, I did enjoy it I think the cinematography is really beautiful um, the story didn't like super super grab me I wasn't sitting there like totally enthralled like I love this this is the best thing I've ever seen mm. um, but I think like in terms of like the way it was put together it was a really solid film it was really beautifully done but yeah not something that I would be rushing back to like I want to watch this every single day for the rest of my life mm. so yeah solid alright Scott solid what about set. you uh, I gotta give it ten out of ten. Wah wah wahs. Yeah. Um, because I think you can look at this movie as an entertainment thing, and I think you're gonna be a little bit um, tired of it. But if you try and look at it that way, but I've always seen this film as art um, mm. in every aspect. If you want to look at how to build suspense in a scene, then you know film lectures will tell you to go watch the end of this. You mm. know. Um, in, not just the ends, lots of places of suspense mm. you could cut with a knife and that's made by Leone just splicing together some shots and close-ups mm. and things, which is amazing. And yeah, yeah like we said, like with Marconi, the soundtrack is amazing and the film is like it's written for the soundtrack, which it partly was and shot for the soundtrack. So yeah. that's how you mm. make proper films mm. back then. And yeah, I mean, you're not going to get too attached to any of the characters. You know, the plot devices are very straightforward. But um, every single frame of every shot is mm. beautiful. There is not a single f- shot or frame in this whole film that is not carefully thought out, planned, um, and executed. Yeah. Everything is, like I said earlier, the perfectionism there. Okay. So, um, yeah, f- I don't watch it very often because it's not something you'll want to watch when you're entertained. I, I watch it when I want to be reminded of what filmmaking what it's possible to do yeah it's your caviar sort of yeah yeah yes. you don't want to eat large amounts of it you just want to sort of savour it every now and then and yeah. I remember being enraptured by this film the first time I saw it for mm. those reasons um, so yeah 10 out of 10 mm. from me for me it's it's not gonna be a 10 out of 10 because I, I do think there are a couple of things from this film where I'm like this could have been a little bit better but it's not it's it's not really anything that I think um, detracts from the experience I think it is marvellous I I sometimes think I really like westerns, and then I realise I just really like the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's that, like I, I do like well westerns, and I do like some of the stories that are told in western settings. My favourite comedy is a western. It's Blazing Saddles. I think it's, and but, but part of the reason it works is because of the setting that it's it's in. Um, and I think the part of the the good, the bad, and the ugly. It it feels very much like. Um, it feels a bit like Stephen King's The Dark Tower with like these characters that are chasing each other through this chaos. But it also feels like The Lord of the Rings with, as you were saying, with yeah. this like big 
sweeping landscape that the narrative takes place in. I think that this film is remarkable. I mm. think it is... It's, it's incredibly well made. I think the music is one of the standout things in a film which mm. has so many standout things. Um, I think it's one of the key elements for its success. I think the performances are are very good. And I I would go right now and watch more Leone films. Like, if, 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 if time permitted, I would just look for a fistful of dollars or a few dollars more and I would go and watch it because now I am in the mood. Like, yeah, right. yeah I really, really enjoyed this. So... Um, all things considered, for me, I think the I think the good, the bad, and the ugly has to get nine hats shot off heads yes. out of ten. I think it's yeah, it's it's a really great film. And Ellen and Scott, thank you so much for joining me on this episode to watch it. That was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. And for those of you listening at home, thank you for listening in. Uh, this was a film that was selected by partly our wonderful patrons. You can become one of those wonderful people and have me praise and talk nice about you each and every week if you'd like. Uh, go over to patreon.com forward slash podcast and you can uh, get extra bonus material there. We recently had uh, an interview with uh, filmmaker Robert Woods, which was available exclusively there uh, for a time period. So, you know, we, we put up... And there are some things which are exclusive forever, only the patrons get. So um, please, if you want to find out what those things are, head over there. We are also available to be found on Facebook. That's where we put up uh, polls for people to vote on, like this one. Um, we, we were like, hey, which Leone film should it be? And you guys chose that over at Facebook. Just search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club on Facebook. Give us a like. You'll get updates. You'll get all sorts of fun goodies. Uh, you might even get a picture of uh, my dog behind a microphone. Uh, things like that. There's, there's all sorts of fun bonus things there. <laughs> Uh, and of course, make sure you're subscribed via iTunes or SoundCloud or Spotify or however you subscribe to hear a new episode each and every week. But that's all for this week. So until next time, goodbye. You have been listening to a Thought Jar Productions podcast. For more information, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com.